going to get into sexual types. And we're going to start off with talking about why we're going to talk about it. And the main reason is because, for one, sexuality is something that needs to be talked about more in general. And then another one, I think that, you know, just knowing these things and discussing them with your partner, it's going to create intimacy. And we know that emotional intimacy is the good foundation for any sexual relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And being open and talking about it actually, from my experience with couples, leads to a more frequent sexual activity. And so just the act of talking about it is really helpful. If maybe you're having, you know, in your marriage, some difficulty, say with frequency, or even are you both satisfied in the sexual relationship? And that's really, I think what we're getting at is that sometimes uh, this is not all the time with couples who are experiencing difficulty, because sometimes it's just about frequency, but sometimes the couples are missing each other. What I hear is they say, oh, we're so different. Yeah. And what I try and help them see is that that's true for any marriage. I mean, you don't marry yourself. You actually marry someone else. And so you're going to have different ways of thinking about sexuality. So certainly talking about it is the the first key. So this is many years ago. There used to be, I think they, they don't have it anymore, the Utah Commission on Marriage. And they used to sponsor people coming in. It was really a great thing for therapists. They would have a therapist session like one day. And then in the evening, this whoever the speaker is, like they brought Gottman in one time to do it. This guy I'm talking about, Barry McCarthy. And then in the evening, they'd invite the public in, you know, for to to get some information. So Barry McCarthy, I, I'm guessing it's terrible to say either he's dead or retired because he was quite old back mm-hmm. when I mm-hmm. saw him. But he was a sex therapist out of Washington, D.C. So if anyone knows Barry McCarthy, and I just said he was dead and he's not, I'm, I apologize. <laughs> but, you know, back in the day, you know, 20 years ago, I really liked his books. He's pretty prolific uh, with books and he writes often, not all the time, with his wife, Emily. And I think his books can be very helpful. But this is where, so he talks about couple sexual styles. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes it can be helpful just to give information. So he has this, it would be an assessment, I guess. And I don't think there's any way we can print the assessment probably or link it because I don't know where it's linked. I just have this because I went to the conference. But if anyone's interested, you know, you might be able to Google get Barry McCarthy sexual styles questionnaire. Okay. And the problem is going to be in the scoring because I had said you you actually have to score this thing and then you come up with what your sexual styles are. And so often it's just the information because, you know, you might be missing each other and you might not know why. And it can be confusing. But if, if you put some words to it, yeah, then often that can be really helpful. And so maybe a good way to start is to start with his four different sexual styles. And then I think you have some, you have some in your studies as well. Is that correct? Yes. And so I will take the opportunity now to reference a book that I am reading for class and it's marriage and family, the quest for intimacy. And it is by Robert and Jeanette Lauer. And I mean, it's been a really good book and it's something that I really enjoyed. And I'll have this book referenced in our show notes as well 
And so they have this entire chapter on falling in love and there's Mm going to be some similarities. And so one of the things that I noticed as I was reading what you had sent me and as I was reading this book is I don't know that throughout our lifespan, we're going to stay in one specific type. Oh, I think that's true. Yeah. I think that we're dynamic through the lifespan. Yes. We aren't static. Yeah. And so, you know, you might identify or as you're hearing, you might say, oh, yeah, identify with that. And it's possible you could identify with multiple of these types of sexuality. And so, you know, I mean, and that's one of the great things about, I think, relationships and human beings is just how diverse and unique we are. And so I think, again, it's just it's it's that exploration And that's really going to jumpstart your intimacy is if you're just talking about these things as a couple and if you're just exploring them and exploring these ideas, really, I mean, it's going to bond you together, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is is because it's vulnerable, at least for me personally. And I I hope most people feel this way in general, but, you know, sexuality, it's private. And, you know, it's something that is just between me and Curtis. And there are certain things that are just so special that I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone else to know. And, you know, that's an intimate setting and it's vulnerable to do that with someone and to talk about things that you're not going to share with anybody else in the world that really creates a connection and a bond. Right. I agree with you that it's part of that vulnerability. You know, if you can be, you know, to be open around sexuality with each other is, can be incredibly connecting Mm -hmm. and you know, because you're emotionally intimate. You're emotionally intimate in a way that you would never be with anyone else. Yeah. 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 Shall we jump into these uh, Barry McCarthy's four sexual styles? So real real quick, before we jump into those four types, I want to talk about companionate love versus passionate love. And Mark, this probably isn't something you're familiar with, but it's something that I read recently and I thought was very interesting. And you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just different words that are are used in this instant. And so passionate love is what you might describe as the beginning of relationship, you know, Uh where it's like, it's really strong and it's intense. And so the way that it's described in this book is it's intentionally emotional. You've got this persistent, strong sexual desire, emphasis on being great lovers. You need to idolize each other and it's consuming. Now, some of these can be a negative. And so they're also talking about passionate love is this idea of it's volatile and it dominates your life and you're subject to strong jealousy and it's limited in duration. So, you know, that was kind of the negative aspect of it, but I think all couples are going to go through that passionate love where they're going to feel that intense emotion and just this strong, you know, like when you first are in a relationship, when you're first married, you want to have sex a lot. And that's a good thing. But eventually, you know, you're going to kind of, I guess you might call it coming back down to earth a little bit and you settle into companionate love, which is described as a strong emotional bond, bearing sexual desire, emphasis on being best friends. It's stable. It's you're you make an effort to be realistic about the other and you're supporting. So it frees one to grow and then it can last a lifetime. And so I thought that those were kind of important distinctions to make as well. Right. And the only thing I'd, w- I'd want to add to that is the passionate love. So I agree that it, don't, it doesn't last very long. I think what I've heard uh, or what I tell clients, six months to two years yeah, is generally wh- how long that passion was. And then you, you know, move into that companion type love. But I think it's really important for couples to 
understand that every once in a while you need that uh, a little bump in the relationship where you get that passion, where you feel it again, where it reminds you uh, in some way of, you know, what it was like early on in the uh, relationship. And often the way you do that is, you know, get out of your routine. It's hard when you have kids, but if you get away alone or if you do something special, you know, focus on making the sexual experience different. You know, we've talked mm-hmm. about novel experiences really increase that dopamine. And so I think the mistake that some couples make is they settle into that companion of love and they think this is it. Yeah. And that, that I think uh, is not good for long-term relationships. I think mm-hmm. every once in a while you need, uh, I don't know how often I would say, but you know, you need to feel that passion again and it's not going to last and that's fine. Right. But to feel it uh, to feel alive again. And, mm-hmm. and so one of the things I was going to say, so when I see couples who are struggling, I will, I think I'll always ask them, tell me what your sexuality was like at the start of the relationship. Yeah. If they, if they didn't have that passionate love, it's really difficult to ever get it. And their, the relationships don't do very well. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those, I did, I did my dissertation on, I don't think I've ever told, maybe I've told you what this is. It's qualities of long-term gay male relationships. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that those qualities that make long-term gay male relationships successful turn out to be pretty much the same qualities that make heterosexual relationships successful. And one okay. of the things that stands out, successful relationship, long-term relationships experience that passion at mm-hmm. the start. And if you don't, I think that would be a huge red flag okay? because yeah. it's not going to happen later. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, I don't know that I've ever seen a couple get there if they didn't have it at first. Okay. Now, and I think it's something that's needed mm-hmm. to sustain the long-term relationship. Now I'm curious what your thoughts are about cohabiting as in terms of what that can do, because I mean, oftentimes, and I know this both from experience and from the culture that I have lived in and grew up in, that for religious couples who wait until marriage to have sex, there's a lot of buildup. And I understand that there are some drawbacks to that, but there's that buildup because you're putting it off and you get to this point where that desire gets to be so strong. And, you know, you really, for you know, your religious reasons, you push that away or you push it back until you're finally able to. And then you have that passionate love in the beginning. And it's so strong and it's, it's really bonding because you're finally able to indulge in your desires. Right. But there are some drawbacks to that. It's yes. that you could turn out to be in love with someone who you're sexually incompatible with. And I okay. certainly mean that. And I mean, it doesn't happen uh, a lot, but so when you talk about cohabiting, here's how I understand the research on this, that living together, if you're in a committed relationship, Mm -hmm. is really no different than being married. Okay. That that it's not about the marriage certificates, about the commitment. Mm -hmm. And, And I don't know if that's what you're getting to. I think that when a couple decides to move in together because not not because they're committed, but, um, and this is what I hear often, oh, my lease is up and I don't have anywhere to go. Can I move in with you? That, <laughs> from the research shows, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And and I think that's a mistake. If you move in for convenience, 
your chances are pretty high that the relationship isn't going to work out. If you move in together before marriage because you're committed, mm-hmm. then the chances are, uh, I mean, it's about the same as being married. Okay. So sexuality, I think the, and the hard thing about sexuality, I get the reason that a lot of religious traditions uh, say don't have sex until you're married. I understand that. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you, there can be some benefits. I think that they, there are sometimes some uh, drawbacks too. I think as hard as it is, having a dialogue about it before you get married would be really helpful. Yes. But as we just talked about, often having a dialogue, it, it leads to increase in sexuality. So mm-hmm. that's that's kind of a hard thing. You know, if you start talking about it, then for a lot of couples, they're more likely to engage in the the sex. But I think you've got to be able to start talking about it before. It's probably, I don't, it's been a long time since I've looked at one of our favorite books, you know, uh, Lies at the Altar, mm-hmm. was 276 questions. I know there's a section in there on sexuality. Yeah. And maybe that's the best place to start. And I want to say that there are ways to safely have that conversation about sexuality. And, you know, as someone who did wait until marriage before I had sex, you know, that was a challenge and it was a concern for Curtis because and that was something that was very important to us to wait until we were married. Mm -hmm. And so there are ways that you can safely do that. So if there are couples out there, because I think that, that you're right, it is so important to talk about it before you get married and mainly expectations. Yeah, I think that is so critical to talk about before you get married of, you know, what you want out of your sex life, you know, maybe your expectations as far as frequency. I think you need to be talking about expectations as far as satisfaction, orgasm. Is mm-hmm. that important to both of you? You know, how often you both want that? So there are ways that you can safely do that. And one is over the phone to do that. I mean, because if you're on the phone. Good idea, Liz. I hadn't thought of that. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, if you have to have the conversation in separate (laughs) states, right, Uh if if you need to, or to kind of do it maybe a little bit chaperoned, right? I mean, and I'm not saying that you need to have this conversation with someone else because you really shouldn't. Don't have this with your parents. (laughs) No, please. No, don't don't involve your parents in this conversation. But I mean, you could even tell them, Hey, we, we need to have this talk. Like Mm. we got to talk about this. So, you know, babysit us, but don't listen. Right. So there are ways to safely have babysit us and don't listen. That's going to (laughs) guarantee someone's going to try and listen. And okay. what you're talking about. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, if you tell them what you're going to talk about, they may not want to. My parents uh, certainly would have. My dad would have been like, uh, nope, and I'm tuning out right there. And, you know, and that's very natural because kids and parents, I mean, we naturally don't want to know about about each other's sex lives because it's awkward. And it's like that for a reason. But that's a that's a whole other topic. But anyways, it, I just, it is a whole other topic, but it's true. Many times. I think Sierra, my oldest daughter, is a physician. And so talking about that stuff is just the whole body thing is pretty natural. There are many times that I had to said to say to her, dear, I don't really want to know this. I do not need to know this right. particular aspect of your life. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's right. And so, but I just I just want couples to know that. It's still important if you are religious and there are ways to do it safely. Yeah. I think one of the things that you want to assess, I don't know if that's a good word to use, but if one of you has low sexual desire, like if, because, um, you know, in a lot of relationships, you're building up to it. And let's say you're in a religious tradition where you aren't going to have sex until your marriage, then that the desire ought to be there, though, and building. 
Yeah. And if one of you uh, does not have that, that should be a big red flag that you talk about, try and figure mm-hmm. out before you get married, because it's not going to get better just because you get married. And yeah. I've seen many marriages that are like that. Yep. And yep. so you need to deal with it uh, at the start, because as we've said many times before, non-sexual marriages do not do well. Yeah. And that's why we're talking about the sexuality. It yeah. really is. It's an important part of marriage. Yeah. All right. So let's jump into the four types of couple sexual styles. Right. So this is from Barry McCarthy. Again, I'll just go over the four real quick and then and then talk about them briefly. Uh, the first one is complementary style, traditional style, what he calls soulmate style, and then emotionally expressive style. So if we go back to complementary, what this is, is the complementary style allows each partner to have a positive sexual voice. So you're more like a team, which I even think if, I mean, in uh, in these other sexual styles, I, I say this to couples all the time, you need to be a sexual team. Yeah. I use that word a lot. And so he thinks that this is the most common sexual style and it's a healthy integration of personal responsibility also as being part of that team. And so he didn't, I don't think he said this, it's been a long time since I've heard him talk about it, but I, you know, this being the most common style, I think he might say this is the one that works the best. I mean, that's just a guess. The strengths are with that approach, you know, everybody has personal responsibility acting as a team. Then you can have flexibility, variability in those sexual roles. Each person values intimacy and eroticism and, you know, it's a shared experience. And so, you know, as I'm remembering, I think he would say that's a, that's a pretty good style. Now, it's not like you're going to, but I can't remember if you can actually shift. You can probably shift your style. Like if you're working together and you talk about it, I think you could then decide, okay, we're going to be, a, you know, have a complementary style because it's just involved that personal responsibility with being an intimate team. One thing I want to bring up real quick, because I was reading through these different styles, I thought, okay, I saw a little bit of me and Curtis in each of these to Uh an extent. And so, I mean, I think you can, I think you can incorporate multiple styles, right? It's so individualistic. That's that's true. And I've scored, I, I used to give this quite a bit and in scoring it, you can end up with a score that's pretty even across all four of them. Okay. So yeah. it's just the way you answer the question. So yes, that is a possibility, but often what happens is one stands out. Yeah. And so where this tends to be helpful, this type of assessment is if I'm complimentary and my partner is soulmate, then you need to really talk about it and figure out what does that look like to uh, merge these two. And so that it's more, it's about the information that it gives you and it gives you a place to start the dialogue. Mm-hmm. So traditional style, he thinks this is the most predictable and stable, puts a high premium on keeping the peace, valuing commitment and stability, acceptance and security. Couples who use this style worry about emotional and sexual conflict. They are not into drama, mm-hmm. which I don't know. I think I think most people should not be into drama. <laughs> yeah. Drama is really hard on relationships, I think. So traditional, that's what he calls traditional strengths. It's predictable. There's security. The man and the woman have clearly defined roles. He's the sexual initiator. She's less active. 
in those erotic uh, scenarios, but open to his preferences. So that's how it's different. That's kind of the typical patriarchal, I'm going to use that term patriarchal, the man in charge model. So that's not going to work for everybody. It is going to work for some people, though, Mm -hmm. for some couples. The drawbacks to that, he thinks it doesn't work for many couples because it doesn't focus enough on mutuality and sexual intimacy. You know, whenever you have, it's kind of like one, well, the male is in charge in this. Although I suppose he doesn't say this isn't true, but traditionally, probably, you know, one is in charge. It could just as likely be the female, although I don't know that I've ever seen that be the case in marriages that I've dealt with. So that's traditional. Yeah. And well, and as far as traditional, I mean, I think you can be traditional or you can maybe like the idea of traditional, you can evolve it to be healthy, right? So I think you can be traditional and still bring some of the emotion into it. That's entirely possible. I would right, and I, and, and I hope listeners don't think you know I'm saying this doesn't work. It'll work for some. It's not yeah. going to work for many. And I I would guess as we strive as a culture to be more equal between the mm-hmm. sexes, that this becomes less viable. Yeah, that type of uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. The third one, soulmate style. So this is true that a lot of uh, experts for years advocated that the perfect sexual style would being a soulmate. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was a book, it's called The Sexual Crucible by David Sarnak, I think. And that that's the whole premise of this, I believe, is this, the soulmate style. It's experts thought for a long time, it's the highest possible level of intimacy and uh, closeness for a sexual relationship. There is a sex therapist I've mentioned out of New York City. Her name is Esther Perel. She's a Belgian woman. And she her first book and probably her most famous is called Mating in Captivity. And she would advocate that soulmate style does not work very well, that you have to maintain some mystery to the relationship and that you can, I think even Gottman has moved to this, that you can be too close. Yes. And it takes away a lot of the mystery. And what happens or what can happen, I'm not going to say it always happens, but often with soulmates, you tend to de-eroticize your partner. Mm-hmm. And so you don't see them as that erotic partner anymore. Okay. And I think that's, uh, to me, that's a big problem. That yeah. You need to, at times, that's, see, I think that's the heart of, of the passion. You know, when, when you were talking about that passion and being erotic is a word that some people are uncomfortable with. I think it's really a, an important word to use, but that's how we're looking at in that, those first stages of the relationship. And so, you know, when I said every once in a while, you need to get back to that. Mm-hmm. You can only do that if you still see your partner as your erotic partner. Right. If that, think- that's soulmate, when you tend to erotic, de-eroticize, that's a problem. Okay, let's take a quick break and we will be right back. Hi there, my name is Maya Acosta and I'm the host of the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions podcast where I explore ways that we can optimize our health. I learned about the field of lifestyle medicine which uses evidence-based approaches to prevent, halt, and in even some cases reverse disease. These are lifestyle modalities such as using certain foods as medicine, using exercise to reverse disease, managing our stress, and even getting adequate sleep. 
join me and the amazing people that I get to talk to as I set out to learn how taking better care of ourselves can help us both improve the quality of life and enhance our longevity. Let's get started. And I think the problem too is that a lot of people think of erotic, they associate it with porn yeah, or with something that's inappropriate. And I mean, there's nothing inappropriate about, I mean, even if you're a very traditional religious couple, there's absolutely nothing wrong with seeing your partner sexually, right? In fact, I mean, that's a good thing that's, that's encouraged. It's important in a relationship. And so I think if you're uncomfortable with the term erotic, I mean, you just got to shift away from the idea that it involves, I don't know. Yeah, it's not know. about porn. Yeah, it's not about porn or it's really just I think erotic is just another term for sexual yeah. is I think a good way to look at it. So I think the main drawback for that soulmate style is that, you know, you risk losing that eroticism in the relationship. And that's a that can be a real problem. Uh, the last one, emotionally expressive. So I don't know that I would like this one either. It's, this is stuff of strong emotion and drama. I did, yeah. You know, maybe listeners are getting more good. I don't like drama. I really don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I live a pretty drama-free life. So in this style, uh, partners are free to share their passions, positive or negative, and word and deed. They're emotionally expressive. Uh, style is the most erotic style. So they're highly erotic. And the strength of that is that you're open you know, the openness to the emotional and sexual expression. But I think that there are drawbacks. It risks being unstable, unstable, yeah. I'm sorry. And so I think that, you know, these are the couples who might uh, experiment, say, outside the marriage, say, with threesomes or say, mm -hmm. something like that. And I think we've mentioned that before, that while that might be an erotic fantasy, I I don't know that I've ever seen it work in a marriage. I, yeah. I think it's really problematic. And so I think, you know, if you're in that emotionally expressive type of relationship, that's the risk is that you can think, well, if I feel it or want it, then I should be able to have it. It makes for an unstable relationship. Right. Anyway, this, so those are the four types that uh, Barry McCarthy outlines. And, you know, I think that it could be good to maybe explore every one of these, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and, sure. you know, just explore them and maybe try them out. Try out these different styles as a couple together and just kind of see which one you like or see which one you work. So I think that could that could definitely or it can certainly, you know, it changes things up and it can give you a like that boost that we've talked about that mm -hmm. boost that excitement right. you know kind of bring back it's just right. it's exciting to do new things and our brains love novelty so mm -hmm. you know i mean you can certainly play around with these and maybe get into a little bit of role playing mm -hmm. to kind of help i don't know decide which one you are or which one you like and i think it's important for long-term couples to understand at least i think this is important that so it's true sexuality can be intensely emotional and connecting it can also be physical and that it's okay to move between the two. Yeah. That at times you're just going to focus on the physical, mm -hmm. but to, I think to have a kind of full marriage is at times you need to focus on that emotional connection. It's incredibly emotional. Um, yeah. 
way to, to you know so here's the distinction that some people like if i make love to you then that's more emotional mm-hmm. if we have sex then it's kind of more physical but i think you can have both and you can move yeah. back and forth between them yeah i'm a personally a big fan of combining them right yeah. Yeah. i mean you know the physical can be very emotional and we've talked about that before about mm-hmm. this idea that you know you've got I mean, a huge, you're getting a huge dopamine hit, right? Yeah. When you're, you know, during sex. And that's right. It, it's just, I've heard some couples say, you know, it always needs to be this intense emotional experience. I don't think that's true. Yeah. I think you need it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be purely physical. Yeah. I'd like to mention a few books because I, yeah. I mean, I'm always full of books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, yeah. we're fortunate at Aspen Grove to have a really good sex therapist. She's a Jordan uh, certified sex therapist. She did her training at the Mayo Clinic, I believe. Okay. And so I know from her that the favorite book for sex therapists right now is called Come As You Are, C-O-M-E, As You Are. I've had couples who read it. I think this is correct. It can be, I think it's mostly geared towards females. Okay. But I think that any sex therapist would recommend that the male partner, if there's a male partner, read it as well. And in fact, I've had couples read it and it's been really, really helpful. So if people are looking for a book, if you're having difficulty in your sexual relationship, and I don't, and this is, it isn't geared toward being in a heterosexual relationship. I think you'd be, you can be certainly be in a same sex relationship and get a lot out of this book. So it's called Come As You Are. The other books, and this is, um, I don't think I mentioned this, these two sisters, uh, Jennifer Berman, who is an MD, so a doctor, a medical doctor, and her sister, Lara Berman, who is a PhD. And uh, they write books together around sexuality. And I think they're almost always focused uh, from a female perspective, mm-hmm. which I think is really uh, helpful to have females write. In fact, I think the book Come As You Are is written by a female. Um, But I think to have a book on female sexuality written by a male, I think that's a problem. It's harder. And and so I think the Berman sisters, I think, do a really good job of writing a book. I'd recommend any of their books for people. And they've they've written quite a few. Anyway, so those are the those are the two things that I would say for listeners to consider to read. You know, and I think that's worth talking about for a minute. And it's something that we kind of expounded on fairly recently in our episodes as we've talked about kind of intimacy and and romance over the last month or so. And that's how different sexuality is between men and women, you know, and I go back to this analogy that I gave of, you know, men being a light switch and women being the toaster oven. Uh Right. And And a lot of it comes down to the physiology of sex and kind of the mechanics of how it all works. But, you know, that's something that you really need to talk about. And I think that's why that there are more books for women about sexuality than there are for men, because I think for men, sex is just it's easy. Right. I mean, it's it's, it's easier for most men. You're right. Yeah, it's easier for most men. You know, I mean, and for most men, if they're having sex, they're going to get to climax. It's mm-hmm. not always the case for women. Right. And, you know, right. I think that that's a huge source of frustration that not enough couples talk about is that it can be so much harder for women to climax than men. 
Right. And so again, we're making general statements and we say this all the time. It's going to be true most of the time, but it's not true all of the time. So I've certainly seen men with low sexual desire and with difficulty in their sexual relationship. It's just less frequent than for the females. Yeah. And I think I've heard this somewhere before that I think like something like 70% of women require clitoral stimulation in right. order to climax. Right. It's a, and I, I was just talking to a couple about that today. I think you're close. I, I think it's might be 60% who do not achieve orgasm through intercourse. Yeah. 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 Which I mean is a shockingly high number. And so for a lot of couples and particularly in religious cultures, they might, they get a little uncomfortable of that idea of bringing in outside stimulation and just think of it from the perspective of it's important. And, you know, that 